Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm from a company called B Squared, and I am the host of the Sendcast, the podcast for special educational needs. Each week, we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support professionals working in schools, and to empower parents. On this week's podcast, we're discussing self harm. How can we understand and support our children and young people? My guest this week is Dr. Tina Ray. Tina is a consultant psychologist with over 30 years experience working with children, adults and families. As well as this podcast, B Squared also run the virtual SEND conference and parent talks. The virtual SEND conference is a conference for schools that runs twice a year. This is a virtual conference that the conference comes to you over the internet. We record every session and this means you can watch the videos whenever you need to on demand. You can purchase access to future or past events. For more information, visit www.virtualsendconference.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be giving you a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. Now on with the podcast. In this week's show, we are discussing self-harm so that we can understand and support our children and young people. Discussing this with me today is Dr. Tina Ray, a consultant psychologist. Tina has supported children, adults and families for over 30 years. She's currently working as a consultant educational and child psychologist in a range of SEBD, SEMH and mainstream contexts, including compass fostering, supporting foster carers, social workers and looked after children. She has had many positions in many places, including a trustee of the Nurture Group Network and is a member of the editorial board for the journal Emotional and Behavioral Difficulties and for the International Journal of Nurture and Education. She has written over 100 publications and I'll be sharing some of these in the show notes at the end. Welcome to the show, Tina. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're welcome. Self-harm is an area of concern for everyone who supports children and young people in order to foster well-being and mental health. There are many myths and general misunderstandings about this topic, so it's, in, it's essential, given the current pandemic and increased levels of stress for our children and people, that we understand and feel able to support them effectively. So let's start with what self-harm is and some of those myths and misunderstandings. Let's start there. From my perspective, self-harm is a means, a way of children, young people and adults trying to manage real psychological pain effectively. It's actually a way of managing. And there's a lot that the biggest myth around it is that it is definitely going to lead you to take your own life. Because actually, there is not always suicidal intent. It can be a precursor to that. But in essence, it's not that. It's, it's the opposite. It's a, a means of actually staying alive because what you're doing is you are engaging in this self-harming behaviour so that you can stay alive. It's a, a way of managing the pain that you experience, but you are basically unable to express in any other way. So for some of our kids, it will be about the need to feel in control for some, it will be about the need to punish myself because I'm not quite good enough, I'm not perfect enough, I'm not doing the right thing. For some, it is, a, in essence, a, a form of trying to get some help. So it's not what it isn't. It's not attention-seeking. It's attention-needing. And that, that's quite an important thing to actually differentiate because, again, it can be quite pejorative if we, we talk about these kids are all you know, attention-seeking. They're not. They, they need attention. We all need attention. So is sometimes, so attention needing, that's a, yes, that's very different. It's like a attention seeking is 
just low level. This is this is the child really needs attention and they need support or they need something. Yeah. Is that so just listening, so obviously not on a self-harm level, but um, I had a previous job at the uh, IKEA. I used to work in the warehouse. And uh, sometimes I would be quite angry, but it was great because I had these really big cardboard boxes I could beat up and I could let aggression out. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it was like an outflowing of aggression. I didn't have to talk to anyone. I could just literally beat up cardboard boxes, which was really therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Is, is sometimes self-harm that sort of thing, that it's almost like it's a release or is it different? It is a release. And I think that you get into a cycle. We call it the cycle of cutting. You get into a cycle because the moment that you inflict that pain on yourself, you get this real sense of release, a cathartic sense. So the problem is then is that your anxiety levels start to build up again and that you can be triggered again into engaging in that behaviour. So the idea is to try over time, not automatically instantly, but over time to help to support the child to dispute the negative automatic thinking they're engaging in that triggers that need to engage in self-harming behaviours. So there is a similar sense of getting out that that feeling, that anxiety. The thing is, it's habit forming. Yes, it's, like other, it's addictive. It's like any other addiction. You get into it and it becomes repeat, repeat, repeat behavior. And it's really difficult. If you're in that kind of bell jar of depression, you it's a way of you actually feeling that you can connect again with the world, you know. I mean, and on an extreme level, some of our kids, kids I've worked with who are in care, who've been physically, emotionally abused, with some of them engaging in this, particularly cutting they want to appear ugly to the abuser. So for them as well, there's another motive here in terms of actually engaging in these behaviours. But the main thing to remember is that it is a means of actually getting out your psychological pain and trying to manage it effectively. But it does become a sort of self-reinforcing cycle. And the problem is, is that it becomes normalised. It's like, this is what I do when I get to feel like this. This is the behaviour I engage in. In that cycle, there's there's two stages. There is the, it's building up, and then there's the self-harm, which yeah. gives the release. And then, so you, you, you're two stages. And I suppose with that self-harm, you're then trying to do two things. Is one, not, you don't want it to build up in the first place. So you're trying to break the cycle that way. Yeah. But you also, that person realizes that their release is to self-harm. So what you're also trying to do is help them understand there are different ways of releasing. So yes. on one hand, you're trying to stop the build-up, but yeah. you're also trying to support them to see that, yes, that is one way of getting that release, but there are other ways which are better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, over time, what we'd be doing, when I'm working in a clinical sense with children, young people, I'm getting them to understand that there are different ways to break the cycle. And then I'm, I'm getting them to actually develop what we would call strategies for the first few minutes, because that's what really matters. When they get that trigger, what can I do to stop myself? Because over time, I want to, you know, prevent this. It's a bit like stopping smoking. You know, you reduce it over time to the extent that you don't need that addiction anymore. You've replaced it with something that is more helpful. I mean, punching, you know, cardboard boxes 
okay, screaming at the wall, jumping up and down on the spot. I mean, anything that actually gets that anxiety out physically or being in a very, very cold shower. So it, it kind of revitalizes you, makes you feel alive and connected again. Those kind of basic strategies. But the first few minutes when you, you want to engage in that behavior and you feel that trigger, kind of your brain is not in that good place to make decisions or problem solve because you've had that emotional hijack. What you need to be doing then is thinking, like, what can I do? Just, you know, maybe set a one minute timer, count from 100 to zero backwards. But, you know, simple, basic things that I can do. So I actually just divert myself away from that in that first minute, because the first minute is absolutely vital, really. You know, and I think that that's when I'd be saying, you know, we would do things like develop a self-soothing box for them and they, they would engage with that straight away. But it's a habit. It is habit forming. So, you know, addictive behaviours take time to unpick, to understand, to unpick, and then to put something else in place that is is less destructive, really. So before we started uh, recording, I said, this is one of the areas I really don't know much about and a lack of experience. And you said something there, which is just give me a question. So you said in the first minute. So to me, I, I thought self-harm was kind of a long-term thing, that things bubble up for a long period of time and then you get to that release point and go down. But it's, it, what you just said sounds like it is there could be one specific incident which could just really bring this and give me that need to self-harm. So is, it, is this cycle, is it a long-term thing? Or could it literally be literally five minutes and that's done the damage and I need to? And what, what sort of time scale is we talking? It's like this sort of it's self-harm. So, it's so variable. I mean, I, I think when I'm talking about this, this first minute being important, that's the point at which you feel the sense of overwhelm. Okay, so right. that's why I'm saying first minute go, you know, this so is what it could I need take to a while. Yeah. And it's that it's the final straw, yeah. it's the things that will have been building up, you know. And I mean there are there are ways to, to break the cycle, different ways. I mean, you've got to identify what these big overwhelming fe- feelings are, and that's when you engage with them therapeutically. How can they be changed? How can they be managed better? You want to increase the young person's ability to actually cope in that situation, in that moment, and boost their sort of resilience, teach them health and coping strategies. All of this is part of it. You need the plan for the crisis moment. And is there anything else that they can do? That The sense of relief that you get, this cathartic moment from the self-harm, what else can we put in place that would get a similar feeling without causing them the physical, emotional, psychological harm? And also thinking, you know, I mean, I do a lot of motivational interviewing around this where there's always relapse, but there's a sense of guilt and shame that the child or young person would feel afterwards. And my perspective on that is always thinking, well, how we need to explore that a bit. How can we use that as a motivation for change? You know, it's about learning from it. What can we do? Because we know we don't want to feel like this. This is an awful feeling. It's horrible. I don't like myself. I hate myself at this moment. I really don't want to be doing this anymore. You know, you're, you're at that point where you want to begin to change. So we tap into that to begin to put alternatives in place. But that's, you know, it's kind of, you can intervene at any of those stages, really. But it's actually recognizing where the child is in in that cycle. So we talked about self-harm is a communication. It's a need for attention. It's a release. It's various other things. So is there sort of a link to self-harm and almost like not understanding yourself or how to express yourself? Is there a, a communication that you don't know how to express yourself? And this is how I'm. And so to help that person 
with this self-harm is in reality you then need to sort of really educate them in feelings you've got to really increase that emotional intelligence they can start to recognize it themselves and then start to refine those parts that's that's a lot of work involved isn't it yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean i I think a lot of the kids that i've worked with who um engage in self-harming behaviors many of them have been on the continuum many of them have additional issues they very often there there are links between comorbidity with eating disorders as well. And for me, this is a, it's a long term thing. I think I think people kind of get get the wrong perception. They they if they don't understand how deep rooted it is and how it links to all the other difficulties in a child's life, they can kind of jump in and think, oh well, we should be able to just solve this. We'll we'll help them. We'll support them. But actually, it takes a lot of educating because the consistent factor that's a similarity between all of my casework really has been that these children have very often been unable to express the way that they feel and that has meant that they bottled it up they've been frightened or uh, uh, they've not understood the big feelings they haven't felt safe to explore them they haven't had the opportunity to be with someone who's appropriately therapeutically trained who can engage in authentic listening make sure they feel that they're in a safe base with them that they can really explore those big, big feelings and that, that within that kind of nurturing context. So I think there is a direct link here with many of the kids who have got this lack of emotional intelligence awareness. Not always, but many of them in, in, in my yeah. experience have, yeah. Because it is, it is that expressing and it is, is you sit there and think sometimes you have a really bad week and you're really angry and you and, Generally, I've found times where it's all rebuilt and it's been too much and I've had to walk yeah. out the house or I've just had to go to a different room or things like that and just sit there and just the feeling which is going through you, but then being able to sit there and go, how did I get here? What, what was that trigger? And for some of us, we are able to do that. We are able to sit there and get to this point in your feeling and go, mm-hmm. right, I need to not feel like this. This isn't good. I'm feeling really angry. And you're and then you're sitting there, and I, I sit there and pick it apart, and I work out what it is. And sometimes it is completely out of my control. There are things that have happened that nothing I can do can't impact on it. And but then I, I make sure I, I make a change. But that takes a certain level of being able to recognise that feeling, be able to pick that apart, mm-hmm. and work out how did I get here? What is different this week to last week? It could be one incident, or it could be ten incidents in a row. It could just be warnings to slow down in life. Don't take on too much. It could yeah. be it's that, that's the feeling. And and that there's so many reasons to get that feeling. And realizing that self-harm is it's it's sort of like if someone gets this feeling. So I remember when I was younger, somebody I know liked a girl, she didn't like him, and he ended up getting angry and punching a wall. And it's kind of in my head, I'll go, Who's stupid enough to punch a wall? Because mm. I just because you literally going, if you do that's gonna hurt. It's really obvious that's gonna hurt. But basically you had these feelings inside, and I now realise that that was he didn't know how to let that out. He was just angry and he needed to lash out. Yeah. And it's that being really aware of your emotions, mm-hmm. that's the sort of thing which leads to self-harm. It's if you're not aware, if you're not kind of in control, mm-hmm. if you're not able to reflect, I can see how this would lead towards self-harm. Oh, yeah. And I mean, if you've not been in a position where an adult has actually supported you in the process of learning to be emotionally literate, learning to talk about your feelings effectively, conflict management, how to manage big, overwhelming 
experiences, you know, you need the support to do that. I mean, there is a distinction between boys and girls, I've got to say. Obviously, more girls, we know from the the research, more girls engage in these behaviours than boys. But there is an increase over the last 10 years in particular of boys engaging in these behaviours. And the difference, namely, is that they will do things more aggressively, like punch the wall, bang their head banging against the wall, etc. Whereas girls will tend to do more things around scratching, picking, cutting. My, I suppose my biggest issue currently is is really around their access to self-harm websites and stuff like that so part of the plan very often for me is to try to decrease their access to that because a lot of these vulnerable kids will be online looking at stuff that really does trigger these behaviors but also because it kind of slightly glamorizes it it, and it makes it like we're in this club together. But it also, it has the effect of normalising it for them. Oh, well, this is what my group of friends will do. And we're online and we're sharing pictures and images of our cuts. We're being encouraged to cut deeper, et cetera, et cetera. To me, that is really particularly dangerous. And that's one of the things I always write at the outset and working with kids is actually ask them about their access to online information, websites, things that, you know, might trigger those behaviours. Because over time, you know, you want to decrease that because, you know, all the kids I've worked with will say, yeah, that I found triggering, that did trigger me. But it also normalises it. If you begin to think it's normal behaviour, a normal response to psychological pain, the problem then is that you're less likely to go and seek help professionally therapeutically because it impedes that because you you think well everyone else is doing it so you know it must be normal it must be okay of course it's not but you know when we know the statistics young minds the last um, piece of research they conducted with um, 14 15 year old girls they found that one in four of them had engaged in some form of self-harming behavior this is 25 percent so this is really massive isn't it it's not a small problem now you know I think what what website what we can do with the world, which in some ways is amazing, in some ways then dan- is dangerous, is yeah. you might grow up in a street with no one your age or people your own age, but not the same interest as you. Mm-hmm. And you can go out online and you can find people with the same interest as you. You can find people and surround yourself with like, which is great. When you have an interest, you're really into sellotape. <laughs> <laughs> or blue tack or something really random. You can go find a load of blue tack lovers or sellotape lovers and you can share your favorite stories on sellotape with them. Odd, but great. But it has that same effect when it's a negative website. That self-harm, as you said, it glamorizes, it celebrates it. It makes this person feel that there are others like this. And then you're, they'll read stories on there where no one else gets it, but you all do, which then reaff- reaffirms that my parents don't understand me. These people do. Yeah, yeah. And it feels like they are reaching out to you and it, it feels welcoming. You feel accepted. And that's all going to actually, it's what you're kind of looking for in the first place. You're looking for someone to accept you. It, it, it just really is, gets really dangerous. Yeah. And again, it takes an, a level of understanding to realize and I know with the new relationship and sex education that they talk about positive relationships in there and understanding that is this relationship positive? Is this helping me? Mm-hmm. In one hand, they're being friendly. They're accepting me. I'm getting certain things back, but actually where it's leading to, is it helpful to me? Mm-hmm. And it, it's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, again, a lot of levels of experience and, and understanding and knowledge that a lot of children, as you said earlier, on the spectrum might, being unable to understand yeah but also you see it feeds this obsessional nature 
of that particular problem that they have or problem or, or diagnosis, not necessarily a problem for many of us. But I think it does, it feeds that because it is obsessional type behaviour. And also being part of that club, if you're not naturally someone, if you're more vulnerable and withdrawn and shy and your social interactions are difficult for you, then the online world is really quite attractive because you can be who you want to be. You can present as something else. You can manufacture an image yourself but you can also suddenly become part of a group where you've got these lovely virtual friends but they're not your friends you know and they're certainly not your friends when they start encouraging you to engage in behaviors that really are damaging and and really you know quite scary I think in the in the short and long term they're probably often people just as lost as you absolutely trying to find someone out there and generally what happens and it is just feeling that bad habit and that those feelings it's 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 making you think about it more rather than reducing it yeah i mean if it, if it, you know i think that there are clearly i mean that there are apps like calm harm the app that you can put on your phone that helps you with this particular behavior and, and provides a lot of support and advice and there's great stuff there are some useful things and there's lovely stuff online where you can access people who will be supporting you and they're usually it's because they've been policed effectively by adults in the background but i've read some content that i i just find totally distressing and it's it's around just this encouraging to display your wounds, to do things in, in this open forum, almost like sort of selling yourself, selling your image of you as a self-harmer. And it's like that makes you something worthwhile. So it's really skewing their attitude and their understanding of what matters about being a human being and what, what gives you value. It, it doesn't actually give you value. It, it just presents and shows your, your level of damage, I think, to the world. And that's quite frightening. You know, I mean, I think there is an issue for me around peer support. There is an issue that, for example, you know, if you are, if I'm a 13 year old girl, then very often the last people are going to find out about this are my parents. Because sadly, usually, there's an issue with relationships or something else that's triggered it in, in, in the home or in my relationships at school. If I'm a 13-year-old girl, the person that I probably am going to go and talk to first will be my 13-year-old best friend. So I've always thought very, very strongly that we need to make sure that kids are aware of this. We don't glamorise it, but we demystify it. It's on the curriculum. It's part of what we teach us through our PHHE wellbeing curriculum. Because if I'm the 13-year-old girl, I need to know what to say, how to respond, what the right thing, the wrong thing would be to say to my friend, where to get help, who it is in the school context that I go to with this worry or concern if my friends talk to me, who we could go to together to talk it through, where we can access support. Do I go with her to the GP? Do I tell her just to stop? No, I don't because she won't. What do I do? Do I just listen? Do I talk to her about how to get help? Do we, you know, give each other emotional support, whatever? But also, what do I do when I go home and I'm holding on to this information and I'm worried about my friend all weekend. And she suddenly sends me a text on Sunday night and says, I'm going to help harm myself now, you know, because that's the reality of it for yeah. those 13 year olds. And I think that for too long, what's happened in schools, not now, but, you know, in the past, I'd say until about three or four years ago, in my experience, people were not dealing with it effectively. There was a fear factor. Oh, if we start talking about it, if we put it on the curriculum, everyone's going to self-harm. The parents will go nuts because, of course, everyone's going to want to engage in these behaviours and they'll accuse us of promoting it in our school. And that isn't the case. If you have 
an effective level of support and systems for the kids in terms of interventions and a whole school policy, you can guard against all of that, in my view. I feel really passionately about it. You know, there's so much that schools can do. So I think it's important, as all that stuff you mentioned, that that child also knows and understands when... Because I think it's great that, and it is really good, that if you found out your friend was self-harming, you support them. That you have some information and some knowledge on how you need to support them, but also that being able to recognise when you need to get your parents involved, when Absolutely. you need to get the school involved. That actually, if you just have that message, are you at that point where you're going, okay, this is much bigger than what I realise. I need to tell my mum and dad. We need. To. There are things. There are times understanding that and being and feeling confident that when you do that your parents will deal with it in the right, they'll respond correctly, that the school, if you're making that phone call to school, mm-hmm. that they will deal with it correctly. Yeah. That, yeah. There's, a, there's a lot going in there. That as a 13-year-old child, you've got to know that if I do this, the right things will happen. It's not going to damage my friendship. There's things like that. It starts getting really complicated in that sort of area. It's, it's huge. Mm-hmm. And there was something else you mentioned, which I've got to think, but it's gone from my head, so I will probably come back. It will jump back in my head. So um, self-harming, I generally, when I think of self-harming, I'm thinking of, oh, that was it, image, self-image. Mm-hmm. So you talked about that being able to show your injuries off, show your self-harming scars and off. Mm-hmm. And that's a real double-edged sword. And um, because on one hand, you don't want, someone to feel embarrassed they've done all of this you kind of want them to be able to accept they've done this there's a certain level of acceptance not hiding away Mm -hmm. and being able to sit there and someone say what's that and being able to have that conversation because that's probably a huge level of anxiety in there Mm -hmm. of not strutting not walking along with your arm out going look at my scars but maybe being able to feel like you can wear a short sleeve t-shirt and yeah. have those it is that's that's really gets complicated on you're glamorizing it to you're hiding it and it's really fine line finding out what is the best way to make this person feel confident to wear short sleeve t-shirts to go out wearing shorts to live their life and not be afraid of everyone looking at that arm or their leg and being judged is that, yeah, well, is that- actually also not being afraid to look at it yourself because what that does is those scars remind you of the pain that you experienced, which directly led to that behaviour. You know, I mean, I, when I say, I don't think I said that correctly in terms of showing off, because it's not about it. When I'm yeah, talking about it. the websites, it's about kids sharing it and encouraging each other, some of them, to cut deeper, to harm themselves yeah. more. So that and, that, and that is really, really contentious, a really difficult problem. Yeah. I think there is an issue in schools when I've heard lots of teachers have said to me of the, the past, you know, oh, well, you know, she's been in the classroom showing off her self-harm scars. And okay, the language is quite pejorative there, but actually she has. And actually you cannot have that in a school. No. Because it is just not a pro- a, it's not appropriate. It's not safe for other kids. It traumatizes other kids, and it's a bit like I, years ago I was working with a young person, and there was some very different advice given by a psychiatrist that she'd worked with, who said that when she felt like self harming in school, she could take a red biro and she could dig it deeply into her arm, into her wrist, while she was sitting at the table, you know, doing her work with the other kids. 
And of course, what direct result of this was that all these other kids were getting really, really distressed. Parents were up in arms about it, you know. And I was asked to kind of say, well, what do you think as a professional? And it's really difficult to put your hand up and say, well, actually, I really don't agree with what the advice that was given, because that that would be fine if that child was at home in their bedroom on their own. Okay, but it is not an appropriate strategy in the context of a classroom. And that's why having the policy is so important, because if you've got a self-harm and you know you're working with this child, they're engaged in these behaviours, there have to be rules around it in the school context. It's really, really important. So there are, you know, once you've got kind of worked out your policy, what who's responsible for what aspect of the care for a child, what you do in this instance, how you work with parents, what the rules are, you've got to actually be really clear on what the specific rules are for individual kids. And the fact is, it is not appropriate to be showing yourself harm scars or sharing them with people. It could re-trigger them. You might talk about that privately to a friend who you love dearly and who supported you and can cope with it themselves, but not within the context of a school. There has to be these rules because it's about protecting all our kids, in essence, isn't it? So on one hand, you've got this, on one hand, you've got this child showing off her scars, really showing off what she's done or he's done to herself and really talking about it. On the other hand, you're, you might have a child who now wears long sleeve T-shirts in PE because she can't show he or she can't show off their arm. So it's finding, which it must be really challenging, finding that middle ground that you don't want to tell this child you've got to cover yourself up because you've self-harmed. So the scars may be on show, and they may not, depending on where they are, but they might be on show. Mm-hmm. You then have to then factor in the child being bullied because they have done that. Yep. You've then got to factor in that there may be questions other children are asking, and you might have to have conversations with the child of going, right, if people are going to ask you, and I suppose in that situation, if, if they're sort of, is, you need to ask them how, to me, it was all about how do you want to handle this? If someone asks you, do you want to have the opportunity to answer them? Or would you prefer someone else to talk? There's, there's a whole, it's really complicated, I can imagine, because you, you, on one hand, you can, you can hide it, which then makes it a whole thing of taboo subject. You can't talk about self-harm. On the other aspect in the spectrum, you're showing off and promoting self-harm. And then you've got everyone's perception of what you're doing <laughs> and a parent hearing one thing from their child and jumping to a conclusion and phoning you up and saying, why is it? Re- it's one of those times where it really... You probably can never win in these situations. But yeah, it's one of the jobs I wouldn't like to be involved with handling that without a doubt. Because it's so many variables, so many perceptions. You've already got a child who is vulnerable. So you're trying to protect them and support them. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, I'm not going to go try and think of that anymore because my head will just explode trying to work out the correct answer. I think when you, when you say there's not a right thing, I think that there are basic things that are good practice that you would put in place. So I'd be talking to the kid about why in school it's a a good idea to have covered up your self-harm. And it's not because you need to be totally ashamed of who you are and why you did it. It's because basically you've got to think about other people as well as yourself. 
Okay, so I don't think they should be on display. I think it, it can be triggering for others and others can get traumatised by it. So I think that there has to be quite a good concrete rule on that in school. And it's the same with, you know, what is your school protocol? If a child divulges to a teacher, so for example, in one residential context I was in, they had a policy in that part of their self-harm policy was that if a child talked to them because they were boarding, they would say to them, okay, now you've you've told me this, you have to phone your parents to tell them, you've got to let them know. I'm going to give you till tomorrow morning and then come back and see me and then we can make a plan and we'll, we'll try and work out the next steps. But that, that child in this particular instance didn't phone their mum and they took their own life that night. And I think that this is why having these systems and protocols in place is absolutely crucial and adhering to them as well and being very, very clear about it. I, I, I would be very black and white about showing your scars off. I mean, I've seen things posted online from adults who basically, you know, oh, here's a picture of a butterfly on my arm. Look at this. And they've taken a photo so that you can see all their self-harm scars. And I look at that and I think I find that very, very questionable. You know, this is this is that is when we talk about attention needing. That's when I I, I get a bit angry actually because I think, come on, you know, this is not right. That's triggering other people, and that you know, if you really need that level of attention, which we can all do at some point, go and talk to someone. Go and talk to the person who can help you work through this. So I think we've got to give, you can give very clear messages to kids in schools about what the rules are around this. And if I'm the head teacher, I would really want to see a proper policy in place, understood by the kids, understood by the parents that we've worked on together. You know, we can have some really good consultation about it. This stuff isn't going to go away. We can't sweep it under the carpet. We have to address it. I mean, look at what's happening in the pandemic. You know, we know from the Young Minds research conducted in March, that kids who were already self-harming, what did they do during the lockdown period? They did more of it because that was their behaviour that they are using to, in order to manage their pain, you know, and they didn't have then the same access to the psychological support and input, but also yeah. peer support, you know. I think it's really, really important that, you know, it's very clear and very specific and, and that the, the support is tailored for obviously individual kids and they need the clinical support but also if you're the staff member who is a designated safeguarding lead plus school mental health lead plus senko because let's face it all of these roles are being amalgamated so this poor individual is having to do so much but you are the person that also maybe is, is talking to that kid who you found in the corridor who's just gone to the loo and cut themselves you know you're the one that's going to clean them up bandages and maybe take them to A&E call the parents you're the one that's going to listen to their story and try and support them effectively. Where's your help? The school policy also has to address the need that some of the staff members who are dealing with this at the front line are the ones that are going to also need some psychological support. So, you know, it's a lot to think about with this issue. And I think that's probably why, you know, and because it is so complex, so emotive, a lot of people don't want to address it face on. You know, I think head on, we need to now. Yeah. So you give me a list of um, self-harm. So we've got taking too many tablets, cutting, burning, banging or scratching one's own body, breaking bones, hair pulling, swallowing toxic subjects or inappropriate objects. So is it with self-harm, do children choose the one and they stay to that one or 
is it is it how meditated it is it what's at reach to somebody who cut themselves start burning themselves is it something if they do it this way they'll always do it this way or do is it depend what's reach or does it depend on the what happens it's totally dependent on the individual child and usually if you start off with one kind of self-harm you will maintain that kind of self-harm so if, it, if it's cutting or it's hair pulling etc but obviously it's a, it's about what have you got available in your context I mean we've worked with foster children who have engaged in these behaviours as a direct result of the abuse that they've suffered and to that extent it's about trying to reduce that but also very often what the foster carers will have done is taken away anything that they could have accessed that might have helped them to cut so no razor blades in the room, nothing that looks sharp, making sure that the jaws are locked where you, you keep all your kitchen knives, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is quite a big ask. So then the child will then revert to something else, which might be right. head bank, you know. So it's it, as you said, when it's, it, you know, it's what, what's to hand, very often that is that is the case. So it, it can vary. And I mean, I you know, I think it when I'm talking to adults about it, we initially think about it and think about some of the myths around it. I also, I always say to them, you know, hands up anyone in this room who's actually got, you know, drunk, who's taken drugs, who's, but, you know, they don't have to put their hands up at all. I mean, it's a, a slightly tongue in cheek thing, but it's just, it's just getting people to say, you know, actually we've all engaged in some form of self-harm and it's to blot out that pain very often to manage that pain and, and you know sometimes blotting it out is the only way of managing it at the time and when you start off the conversation like that it makes it a bit easier for adults to understand because we kind of think actually alcohol is a socially socially acceptable form of self-harm for many of us now you know yeah. whereas sitting with a, a razor blade isn't you know but you know it, it's about actually just beginning to generate that thinking so that we don't kind of go, oh, my God, this is awful. I mean, the, the worst thing to do with a kid is to go into kind of shock mode and say, oh, this is dreadful. You awful child. You shouldn't have done this, blah, blah, blah. Because the moment you do that, you know, it's probably taken them a lot of guts and courage to come up to you and tell you about it. We've got to listen. We've got to accept them, at, at, you know, where they are. And we've got to try and unpick why this is going on and be much more curious about it and supportive and, and empathic rather than judging them or you know some of the parents in the past have said to them well if you don't stop we're not going on holiday with you you're not coming you're not going to get any allowance anymore you're not going to get pocket money etc those ultimatums also don't work you're punishing the kid again it just and you can't just stop you know, it's no. like any addiction. You cannot just stop. This has to be, you know, a really nurturing therapeutic relationship and a whole program of support that enables you to work through and eventually begin to replace those behaviours with something slightly more or less damaging. Sorry. And I think that interesting the talking about alcohol is it's your relationship with alcohol. So there are lots of people who will only drink at weekend because they realise that they will just drink all week. So they drink at weekend and they do get to that Friday and they really, really need that drink. And I suppose this is the same sort of thing. They're really not enjoying what's going on. It's painful. And that drink on Friday evening is that release and they need it. And it's, that is basically what self-harm is. Is, I, is. I'm in pain and I need a release. Mm -hmm. So for those people who really need to get through a bottle of wine, 12 pints of beer on a Friday night is... However you're living your life, it's not good for you. 
and this is your release. Now, I'm not saying there are people who can't change that. We are, we get various things have happened, and various things are going to happen, and various things are happening right now, which really limit our control over this. But it's yeah. it's that is kind of if you're doing that, it's not it's not working. You are on this sort of kind of self, a very lower level self harm, but as you said, it is self harm, mm. and you're blotting it out. It's a release, so you don't have the pain of that week. So when you get drunk, the pain is gone. You don't think about it, and you do have some release from what you've gone through through the week. Yeah. And again, you've given me a list of things that may cause this. So you've got feeling isolated, depressed, relationship problems with partners, friends, and family academic pressures, low self-esteem and feeling helpless, hopeless, physical or sexual abuse, being bullied, feeling powerless as there's nothing you can do to change anything, using alcohol or drugs, needing to show someone else how distressed you are in order to punish them. You said that's not normal. Um, they're very often very private. But I look at those lists and, and I think of 2020 and it is just a bit of a recipe for disaster with self-harm when you think of all of these things. Yeah, yeah, And you think of how to support someone. So not only has COVID made these all much worse, but when we actually think about, well, okay, how can you combat this feeling? Well, you can. No, a lot of that's been taken away from us as well. Yeah, yeah. But there are things that you can do. And I think that's when we think about, you know, this well-being toolbox, creating all the things in our lives that we know can generate these good, positive feelings. And we've got to actually push the balance more for these kids now because they've lost everything in the sense of autonomy, control, relationships, connections, the normal everyday routines and freedoms that our kids have to go out to play, to explore, to socialise, to sit on the street corner and have a pint of cider. You know, all the stuff that, you know, teenagers, etc., would be doing that's a lot of that has been taken away to some extent. And, you know, we, it may be taken away again because we might have another lockdown. You know, this is going to happen again and again, I think, while we try to manage this. So it's really about giving them that sense of hope that it's going to pass, but also that there are things that we can do in the meantime. You know, that thing that you were saying about Friday night bottling it all up till you get to that drink on a Friday and then you have 12 pints or something, you know. Well, what are the alternatives? Get down the gym, go for a run. It's trying to balance it with the healthy things that give you the same endorphin. Kids need to be taught about the chemicals in our body and the fact that when you do some of these pleasurable activities, you will get the same sensation from getting really sweaty and running for an hour that you would from actually just knocking back a few drinks very quickly, you know. And I think that that is very, very important because the difference then is the endorphin factor is much, much healthier and lasts longer and you don't end up with a hangover the next day. So there's, a you know, more of a plus factor there as well. But, you know, ultimately when we're doing safety plans with kids and we're trying to work out what they can do to get through the next minute to make themselves safer, listing things that make them feel calmer, using their tools and strategies, identifying sources of support. When we're doing that with them, we need to know that it's going to work for them, but we're going to be supporting them to eventually replace some of these more problematic responses with ones that are healthier. And I would suggest that that's why, particularly now, given the COVID pandemic, all our kids need to be taught about this, about how to do a safety plan to maintain your well-being, not yeah. necessarily how to stop self-harming over time. That's for the ones who are self-harming. But for all of us, we all need a safety plan to manage our well-being and to maintain it and to foster it as we move forward through this pandemic, really. Is self-harm 
a young person thing or does it continue in life? Because what I've, what I've been thinking about as we've been discussing this, that if I was in a toxic relationship, mm-hmm. hopefully I've got choices and I can leave that toxic relationship. Yeah. If I realize that it's my job that's causing me this distress, I can go find another job. So generally, if I, as an adult, in most, hopefully I'm lucky enough that in when I identify this is the cause, this is one of the issues, I can change that. But when I think of when you're a child, if that toxic relationship is with your guardians, you really it's hard for you to change that. If that toxic, if the your school is that negative, you've got less chance, you've got less control. You're more restricted as a child of making these changes. So. And you, you can say, you, you look at some of the kids, you can say to me, I hate secondary school too, but you'll get through it. And you sit there going, you all accept it's horrible and you've just got to put up with it. But that's negative on them. Whereas an adult, you just go, oh, just, just change it, just change it. If you don't like it, change it. But children, so is it something that people grow out of as they get more control over their life? Or is it something that sometimes stays with some people for life? Or is it as you get better at your emotional awareness and intelligence grows and your communication skills grow, you grow out of it? I think if you're fortunate enough to get the right kind of support and you can develop your own skills to cope differently and more effectively, but you've been nurtured through that by adults who know what they're doing, I think that over time, a lot of our kids will reduce the behaviours and stop them. I think it's more complicated when there are other issues and particularly when it's the result of sexual, physical, emotional abuse and there's elements of PTSD. So you can be re-traumatised quite significantly. And I have worked with adults who, actually one psychologist that I've worked with who's the same age as me, who still self-harms and she's supporting other people. Wow. She doesn't talk about her self-harming, obviously, to her clients because that you've got, well, I don't think you can and I don't think it's ethically, it's not appropriate. But she's got a huge understanding of this. But that is still what she does in order to manage her pain. She's not using the same kind of tools as she did when she was a child. So it's kind of less damaging to her physically, but she is still engaging in some of these behaviours on a, a quite a regular basis. And she knows when her triggers are, she knows what to do, but it doesn't always work. So no. I think it's a continuum, you know, and I think we've got to be very, very clear about this. So the the worst kind of, well, the story that I heard that I really, I can, I can actually, I witnessed, sorry, not heard, I witnessed, was another therapist saying to a child that, Basically, when they began to meet together and to work together, she said, we're going to develop, obviously, it's a therapeutic alliance. We're going to work together and I'm going to work with you to help support you to reduce these behaviours. And she said, but one of the things you've got to do is promise, sign this contract and promise me that, you know, while we're having these therapeutic sessions, you don't engage in these behaviours, which was a totally ridiculous thing to do. Because actually, of course, that child then, that, that therapeutic alliance is ruined at the outset because, of course, the kid is going to go and do it again they're going to relapse it's not perfect they'll try some of the strategies they might have discussed in the session but they might go away and they will engage in self-harming because they're distressed again but then they've got to go back and meet this person and pretend that they didn't do it they'll end up lying if you see what I mean basically the contract means if I sign that contract and I don't do it I don't need the therapy because I by signing this I've agreed to I won't do it so we're fixed marvelous yeah. <laughs> that's one thing you should never do even at the end of it no, and just no. touching back on the photos and glamorizing it, we talked about earlier is 
I've seen on social media, so I've started using Reddit, which is really quite interesting. And every so often, a picture will come up. Um, and I've seen them for drug use, alcoholism, and self-harm, where someone's celebrating 10 years clear or seven years clear. Mm-hmm. And actually, I sit there and I quite like that. They, they have had got their scars on show. Yeah. And they might put in a seven next to it. Yeah. And that sort of photo, I look at that, and my first impression of is, I can't imagine what you've gone through. I'm not even going to attempt to imagine to actually cause those injuries. But to then, with support or on your own, get yourself out of that dark hole and be able to change your life and be seven years without having those thoughts, that is amazing. The same with alcoholism and drug use is yeah. to recognize that that is that destructive behavior and it's, root and it's running your life and you need of it and you're relying on it and changing that. Again, that is huge, huge achievements. Yeah, I mean, the positive, it's a positive element to social media when it, when it actually shows you. I mean, that, that's why some of the celebrities who've talked about it and talked how they got through it can be hugely reassuring for kids, you know. And I think that there is something really powerful about giving the message. You know, I've been through this. Yes, you too can come through it. People do recover, you know. Yeah. But mental illness, per se, stays with all of us. We've all got it all our lives to some extent, on a continuum. And it's about accepting that and accepting that sometimes we're going to have to be better at managing it, you know. But actually showing when I've had a success and celebrating that online, it gives a really good, powerful message to kids. You know, it cannot be said that the opposite is true when you're actually displaying things and doing this online. Yeah. As, as, you know, part of my self-harm group type thing. That is not, No clearly not helpful you know it's just triggering really and what you've just said that that mental health though that stays with us for life and it is there are certain things though, like ptsd things could just trigger and there's not much yeah but i think what people do is they generally get better at controlling the environment they're in so there's less influence there's less negativity there's things like that so they know what sets them off they get better at limiting that but they're not always being able to be in control of that depending on the situation and they also, they get much better at how they respond to it. So I think it's, it's that constantly learning and improving. But, and I suppose there are times like with COVID that all the things you've do, all your ways of dealing with stuff has just been taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And you are, might be able to revert. And again, it's then having lots of different strategies to calling out. So basically, yeah, it's so self-harm. It's, it sounds like hopefully people will almost manage with support they'll work out how to deal with it and change the environment. And I suppose just getting older and going through puberty, going through secondary school and college and coming out, that journey will also have an impact on as well. Yeah, of course it will. And I mean, you think about adolescence and the trajectory there for kids. It's huge. You know, all all of a sudden the pressures, the the sexual pressures, the social pressures, you know, self-image pressures, you know, to look a certain way, to be perfect, to be the one that gets all the likes on Instagram and stuff. You know, it's absolutely enormous now for these kids. And notwithstanding that they're navigating all of that usual stuff within the middle of a pandemic, where they've had so much more ripped away from them. So, you know, I think we can't underestimate it. And I I do fear that, you know, post this pandemic, in the next few months during it and post it, we are going to see an increase in these behaviours and, you know, just in mental health difficulties in general. 
Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that the sooner that we get our heads around that and, you know, get over this narrative of educational sort of cognitive catch up, you know, let's just let's let's just make sure they're all right in their heads. Let's, you know, make sure they're all right emotionally, physically, that they're safe, that they're nurtured. Then we can worry about whether or not they're going to do their GCSEs next year. Yes, GCSEs. Let's not even mention that. No, no, no. Let's move swiftly on from that one. No, no, don't, don't, don't bite, don't bite. And I think, I think what I always think about when I think of mental health and supporting others, I always think of the first thing you do. I think as you're, when you're doing a first aid training, what is your first thing you do? Is you don't put yourself in danger. You don't make one in casualty two. Yeah. And I think it's the same with your mental health. I think for our teachers to support our children effectively. Mm-hmm. They need to be supported effectively. God, yeah, yeah. On a podcast I did with Finton O'Regan on the power of mood, it is how you approach a situation will directly have an effect on the outcome of that situation. Mm-hmm. You go in there calm, collected, ready to listen, you'll have one outcome. If you are only just coping with everything's being thrown at you and this happens, yeah. So we've got to think about how, how those teachers, their opportunities to support, how they are being supported, their pressures. And GCSEs didn't really didn't help. And that's it's all it's a horrible mixing pot. And I do yeah. really wish somebody up in the government did really think about mental health properly for everyone. But I do think that they're thinking economically how it all balances and how to support. But I think mental health is, I don't think it's really being discussed anywhere, really, in this time as the, to the level it should. I don't think the government are really talking about it at all. Oh, no, I think what's happened is they've put a bit of training online that teachers can access for free. What people forget is actually most teachers, if you offer them CPD at the moment, they're likely to shout at you. They're just managing to get into school and keep going and keep teaching and managing the whole covid issue around keeping everything safe and actually you know if they if their government can't provide laptops for our disadvantaged kids who don't have the internet etc and they can't go to the library anymore but they don't have a laptop at home if they can't ensure that then how on earth are they going to ensure the stuff around mental health and no. i just feel that you know it, this we could see it coming months ago we absolutely could see this coming right from last March, you know, from March this year, sorry, we could see it coming. So, yeah. you know, there was plenty of time. We've had seven, eight months now to to kind of plan, prepare, get stuff in place, make sure that there's a counsellor in every school. That, you know, um, there is a magic money tree, apparently. So, you know, surely some of it could have come to support the mental health of our kids in schools. And And if we don't do it, well, it's it's an indictment of us as the grown-ups in society, but we are betraying them as a generation, in my view. Could be very strong about this. I'm getting very political now. Well, this comes back to, I think, what we touched on previous before is um, that uh, resilience and the difference between resilience and stiff upper lip. Mm. I think we've got a very stiff upper lip approach, which basically means not in context with the emotional or completely disregarding emotional, mm. and which means they're not coping themselves. No, we- they're bottling in, bottling it they're up. They're bottling in. And that's what they're hoping, that if we just bottle it in long enough, it will all be fine. And it's that's not what happens. No, it won't. It'll explode. It'll explode. Yeah. That's what happens. You screw the top tighter, and if all of a sudden, push, it's all going to come out. But I'd just like to say that I am with staff and teachers and heads 
is I do read lots of amazing stories on Twitter about how heads are doing this or someone's head has done this. And I read amazing stories and it fills yeah. me with confidence. Yeah. But I bet you there's only like 3% of head teachers are on Twitter. Mm. So that might, that's one thing, this whole bubble thing is, well, that tells me all these schools are doing amazing things. But I, that's not the case because there's various pressures and mm. if the head teacher's not in a good place, and there's just so many factors that you just can't predict. So you've got a head teacher, I know a head teacher who actually due to, is a highly, highly vulnerable, so therefore shouldn't actually be in school. Yeah. Um, and they've got, to have, they've got to then work out how they deal with things and mm. just so many things. And you've got other head teachers who are completely blasé about the whole thing, don't really believe in COVID, don't have any concerns or issues. And then and their expectations of people is going to be very different. Oh, yeah. And yeah. yeah. It, it's just. And the level of support that they provide for them as well. And the fact that they can't differentiate or see that there is someone struggling on the staff team because they're not struggling. So they don't see that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting what you said about Twitter. I mean, it looks like that. But you, you, the thing is, that I always think this about social media. What you have to remember is you might be on Twitter, which is a very nice middle class forum full of lovely. I'm, I'm afraid it is from my perspective. Yes. And I use it a lot to actually share resources. But I'm very well aware that I'm just basically surrounded myself with people who feel and act very similarly to me who hold the same set of beliefs, the same value system in the main. And actually, that's not the main populace out there. So I think no. it's really, really, really important to remember how wide this is and how variable and how different the needs are. And what you need to do is make sure that you're getting your information from a range of sources if you're going to actually really say, this is what it's like out there for schools today. So I think, you know, don't just look at Facebook, don't just look at Twitter, don't look at Twitter in particular, I think it's, it's very narrow, but go much, much broader and actually keep au fait with it all. And, um, you know, really be thinking, what does this bit of research say? What is that person saying about this? Because actually, there are a lot of different perspectives and there are a lot of needs. And what we need to do is find out what the main ones are. And from my perspective, it is about mental health and well-being of staff in schools at the moment if they're going to keep supporting our kids, is not being protected or nurtured adequately. And I don't think that that's the fault of head teachers. I think that's that goes much higher up. And yeah. I think this is about what the systems are, what the support is, and how much money there is. You know, if you're spending another three grand on cleaning materials for your school, well, that's your part-time counsellor out for an afternoon. You know, it, it's you, you've got to be thinking this. Where's your priority? If the money's not there, it's not there, and, and the head teachers can't magic it. No, I had a, I had a completely sound sound random, but I had an experience this morning where I took my car in for a service, oh. booked it in, dropped it off, and uh, I got there and I booked in for quarter past eight. And uh, someone, oh, we're not open yet. We're still doing our cleaning. I probably had them going, why have I booked it in for quarter past eight if you're not open? That's my first thought. And I yeah. should book it in for half eight when you open. You should. And then the, they unlock the door and I was thinking, oh, am I going in? No, no. They then put a table in the door. And then they had a pot of clean pens and a pot marked used pens. Yeah, yeah. And then I, they had to get my paperwork. And I was thinking, do I have to sign this? Oh, really? I'm, literally, I'm literally feeling sorry for these people. I'm standing outside. I've just got my mask on. Mm. And then I had to give him my key. I'm going, so do you have to now go wash your hands because you've touched my key? And I was just literally going, wow, this is just stressful. We're lucky. We're a small company. There's only one or two of us in. We don't have anyone coming into our office. I walk to 
work and back and I'm at home. So I've kind of made this lovely, safe bubble for myself that everything's yes. quite simple. Yes. And then just having this experience today and just having that five minutes of stress and that whole thing with pens made me just think about what is this like being in a school? Mm-hmm. What is this like for a head teacher? I know head teachers and teachers spin a hundred plates constantly. Mm-hmm. I bet you right now it feels like a million plates. Yeah. yeah. And in the middle of this, somebody is going to self-harm. And somehow everyone in that school has to somehow find all that energy to follow that process through correctly mm. on top of everything else. And the good thing is that generally I know from all my experience working with teachers that somehow they will find a way to do the right thing and have the energy and find the compassion and get rid of all of their problems and somehow just put it all aside and support this child for that time. And I don't know how they do it. I really don't. Mm. Mm. It's, it's, I just don't know how they do it, but they somehow do. And in most situations, the correct stuff will happen, not because of the government, not because of the local authority, not because of anyone apart from that own person's yeah. reaching out and understanding and taking their time out. And generally what the cost is, is they will they'll stand and go and do all this other stuff they've got to do. And generally what that time comes from is that own person's time, that person's family time, their relaxing time, there's that. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they will take, rather than having that time to really find their happy time, their uh, cinema time with drinks that we mentioned before we started recording, they will hopefully, the, f- the sense of helping, the sense of making a difference will give them some joy from that. Mm. That actually, that, that person, I always think if someone's reached out to you, you've already done something right. Absolutely, yeah. So even if you don't know the answer, the fact that that person reached out to you in that situation means you've already done 120 things correct because they were able to reach out to you. So let, if we just start with that, if someone's reaching out to you, you're doing it all right in the first place. Mm. And then just being that listen, and you're already doing it right. You're already making yourself available. You're making yourself approachable. You're doing all the right stuff. And everything on from there, generally, if you're doing the first bit, it is going to work out right. You are going to do the right thing. There might be some difficult things. You might not know the answers, and that's fine. I always say it's great to say, I don't know open about that but you will make sure that the difference is made and support and you will sit there and you will make some really i think in these self-harms none of them are going to be easy decisions you might you might have to look at and talk about and find out about okay how are you feeling like this and make some horrible decisions but you will do what's right because you're that sort of person it's why you became a teacher it's why you're in the position you are in now it's why you're giving up your time your life your money often with schools and teachers to look after other children. And I, I don't know. It's, I don't know if I have that capacity in me. It's why I probably never became a teacher. I looked at, my mum was a teacher. I looked at what was involved. I looked at the time, the emotional investment. I looked at all of that. And she worked in a special school. So to me, that was much tighter bonding with those children because there's 10 of them. And uh, I sat there and I looked at all the stuff she's doing, all the different things. And I was like, I, I couldn't do that. I don't at that time when I was growing up, I did no way would I have the capacity. And as a parent, I can cope with two children. <laughs> just I'm just about there with two children and trying to support them. I don't know if I could do it. 
with 30 children and then said no 30 and get another 30, that would, oh, yeah, I just couldn't do it. I don't know. Whoever who can do that and support, it is definitely, I think there are certain people, and um, my mum always said this, that teaching is not about having a degree. It's having people skills. Yeah. And uh, my friend met his wife and he met her and just the way she came across, he said to her, oh, are you a teacher? And she got very offended. But when I met her, she was obviously a teacher. She just has that teacher personality, the caring, the listening, the just, she, she was just a primary school teacher through and through, yet mm. she didn't work in teaching. She then became a teacher and it was like, yeah, we all knew you were going to be a teacher. You were just, a, you were a teacher from the yeah. very beginning. Yeah. And it does, it's not about having a degree. It's not about being a business person. It is all, school is all about people and relationships. Yeah. And I think if you, as a teacher, if you go back to self-harm, you are, all teachers are role models, whether you like it or not. And I think you all know it and you're all leading by example. And, and it is about being that listening person. It is about listening and being open and approachable and letting children come to you and listening. And that's what you're then teaching the children is that they need to do that to others as well. Yeah. And they need to listen to themselves. They need to listen to their own heads, their own thoughts, feelings, and, and be able to express them and do that in a safe relationship with you as the teacher, you know, and it's, you know, you're modeling that, you're modeling yeah. it, your emotional literacy, empathy, connection. And if we do that, you know, then you are going to get kids saying, I'm engaging in these behaviors. I'm worried about my mental health. I really felt the urge to self-heart, you know, they're going to tell you and we're going to yeah. be able to really get in there at a preventative level and really support them effectively. So, you know, it's so vital. And I mean, you know, teachers, you know, in my view, for, from my perspective, saved my life when I was a little kid. And I don't wow. think that dramatically, but I do. And for me, that the power of that, that role is immense. And I think at this time that there's a real need that these unsung heroes like our NHS workers, because I think there is a a real parity here between them. I mean, I think they all should be paid more, but they should all get the MBE, the OBE, whatever. They're going into school in these circumstances and they're doing a job that you and I have both said, because I, I, I don't think I could do it at this juncture. I think I'm too old now anyway. I haven't got the energy. But I do think that it's really, really important. We recognise them for this fantastic contribution, but also recognise that we don't want them to go down the route of self-harm. We don't want them to get more and more damage. So we've got to put the support in place for them and take this pressure off them with exams, assessments, conforming. You know, what we've got to move away from that and say, this now is about all of us looking after each other, nurturing each other so the kids feel safe and the staff do. And they mirror that and they support each other in it, you know. And I'm going to go back to another conversation we've had, which was um, I should start doing shots when I do these things, podcasts, because I see the same things. But it is supporting the teachers. It's yeah. need to be more CPD. Absolutely. Get rid of these league tables. Get rid yep. of these. Really start thinking about what's important. And um, if you're listening to me going, you say this in every podcast, there's a reason. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm pretty sure if you're listening to it, you're all still nodding your head and you're agreeing with me. There is. And it is. We, we just need to make sure that this message starts being heard by more and more people, that there is going to be change. And you, you can't sit there and there are teachers who will just get their heads down and get on with whatever they're being told. And then there are those teachers who will make sure they're doing it the right way. And I think we've just got to that thing where we stand up more for our teachers. We stand up more for our children. 
we say to people, no, I'm not doing that. That's not the right thing to do. We need to change that. Mm. And we all need to just get that bit braver for you and for the others around you to be more happy to say no. Say, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm not doing that this year. Mm. Uh, saying to your children, especially, uh, they didn't mention SATs this year. I can't remember if SATs are happening. I'd really wish if I was a primary school teacher I only year six, I would write a letter to every child and every parent going, I really don't care about SATs. Really don't care. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do them because we have to, but I really don't care. It'll have no impact on your life. I'll get told off, but that's me. That's personally what I would do because it doesn't. It is only, the only thing the SATs are for is, well, there's a whole thing about SATs, but it is, um, it's a monitoring thing. It's a, it's a hammer to hit, hit people with. Mm. And there is a certain level of things, but right now they really aren't needed. And there was one thing I always uh, see on Twitter about, if any time inspections come up over the last few months, there is, a, I think, a, a complete misconception that all the offset inspectors are currently just sitting at home waiting to start inspecting again. They just, they're not actually, all they do is inspect and there's nothing else they do. And you read this on Twitter, uh, I think an offset inspector is coming to my school and see what it's like. It's like, yeah, most, I think most offset inspectors are currently teaching or advising or working what you're doing. They're leading it in their schools. When they come to your school, we have got much better that, yeah, people going to the right schools these days. They weren't originally. No, that's right. So we have got that much better these days. So generally, when that, that officer coming in and is saying these things, they are generally doing it from a voice of experience in, in their settings and multiple settings. Hopefully, seeing lots of different things and what's worked in lots of places. Because generally, I think if you if you go to a hundred places, you will get an idea of what is working and what's not working. But hopefully you'll also be able to recognize that it doesn't always work in every situation and you'll be able to start picking up all those idiosynchronies all these places and make judgments. But yeah, Ofsted, I don't think is needed right now in the way it's needed. I do quite like the fact that they are going in and they should be going in rather than going in and supporting schools, which I think is what they're doing at the moment. They're not inspecting, they're going in and supporting. Mm-hmm. And from a lot of feedback I've had over the last year about Ofsted is they feel less like inspections and more like support groups. Yeah. Well, isn't that wonderful? What a great shift, you know? That's what we need. We need that now. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, I think everyone, even Ofsted inspectors, believe it or not, have their hearts in the right places. They are there to make a difference. They didn't, (laughs) literally, it wasn't like I I was a uh, traffic warden and I thought, you know what? I want to be even more horrible. I'll become an Ofsted inspector. That's not the career path for (laughs) Ofsted inspectors. Yeah. (laughs) Generally, they do something in education and then they become, and they are generally, they've got lots of experiences. They might not have done what you've done in your school. They might not have experienced what you've done. But again, if you're having that thing, it's being able to understand why you're doing it and having that story and having that knowledge. And we really are going off topic from self-harm, aren't we? It's just slightly. Really, I'm just going to stop. I really am going to stop talking. But I think we're going off topic because it is one of those topics which leads into lots of things. It's there's lots of causes for self-harm. There's a lot to think about. There's a lots of pressures to make sure we are responding in the correct way. Mm. And they all kind of need to be addressed. But yes, I love podcasting with all my guests. We always go off peak. We always have great conversations. I always enjoy it. And I always, always come away from these podcasts with a big smile on my face because I've enjoyed the conversation on self-harm. I've learned a lot. Lovely. There were some, I had some misunderstandings. There were some myths. And so I've, I've got that bit more understanding in my head. So for me, it's been an experience and it's been an enjoyable conversation. So thank you very much, uh, Tina. Well, thank you for asking me. 
No, you're welcome. And again, you've given me a load of your books again for uh, useful links. And I suppose these these books, again, so you've got Optimus Education, you've got uh, Hinton Publishing, so there's various places you can get stuff from. And I suppose they're going to help a wide range of people. So there's yeah. stuff for parents and schools and yeah. so on. Yeah. So, yeah, they'll be going in our show notes. So please check those out. Lots of useful resources there. So big thank you again. I always love thanking my guests because they are what make this podcast. I'm, I find myself, I'm the muggle who's here to learn. And sometimes I can contribute. Other times I am just learning and checking my knowledge. So big thank you for today. Really, really enjoyed it. So show notes. So they're on our website as per usual. And you'll also find uh, Dr. Tina Ray's email address and all that's on our website. Big thank you to you for listening to the show. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe by going to our website, www.thesendcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date with the latest news. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram, on LinkedIn, and generally just type in The Sendcast and you'll find us. So on Twitter, at The Sendcast, Facebook, The Sendcast, Instagram, The Sendcast, but LinkedIn, just Sendcast. And feel free to comment, feel free to tag us in, share the news, share the podcast, find it useful, share it, make, make a difference in others' lives. Please do that. Um, and if you want to get in touch with me, let me know your thoughts, suggest topics or anything else, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. And if you've enjoyed the Sendcast, why not look into the virtual Send Conference? As I always mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it's a conference that, like the Sendcast, is run by us here at B Squared. It covers all aspects of special education needs and disability. But what makes the conference different is access across the internet. You don't need to go anywhere. The conference runs twice here in March and November, and each conference has 12 highly valuable sessions designed to help you. With each session having something you can take away, implement, and make a difference in your school. You can buy tickets for future or past events. The videos are always available, so you can build up a library of really good, effective CPD for your school. The cost for each conference is £60. As I said, it covers the entire school, not per person. So really, really cost-effective, great way of getting CPD for all staff around SEND, not just the Senko. And, and as listed as Sencast, we're offering a 10% discount just by using the code Sencast10, no space. For more information on the Virtual Send Conference, go to www.virtualsendconference.com. And if you are a parent, we have also launched Parent Talk. So this approach really works for schools. We get to share a lot of really useful information to teachers. So we designed to do the same thing for parents. But the costs are cheaper because we know it's not really cost effective. So for Parent Talks, the cost is £10 per family for all 12 online talks. With an introduction from David and Carrie Grant, who are parents of children with SEND, and they give a nice introduction to where all the abbreviations that they come across and all those letters you suddenly have to know all about. So uh, that's entertaining. And for more information on parent talks, go to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash parent talks. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> Bye. Bye.